You like Fireboy? I do. You're listening to Your Tables on Fire. A weekly conversation with the hottest game designers on Kickstarter. You're looking at episode number two with Jeff Beck. Hey, this is your host, Jeff Beck. Thanks for turning in to Your Tables on Fire. Well, I'm really excited today. We have two very special guests, two of the founders of Grizzly Forge Studios and the creators of Sabatile. We have Ben Moy and Mark Philly. Ben and Mark, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. First, why don't you two take a second and introduce yourselves? All right. I think we'll go with uh, Age Before Beauty. So, Mark, you want to go ahead and go first? Uh, sure, yeah. I'm Mark Philly. I graduated last year from University of Illinois, studied industrial design. Before that, I was just bumming around, not really sure what was happening. I was studying theater, basically just trying to get into product design and, and just thinking about, I don't know, I've been very passionate about games lately. And, you know, it's been very exciting to, to actually be able to pursue that. For me, uh, pretty much everything that Mark said, except that I also like superheroes. <laughs> well, I'm expecting that in your next game design, by the way. And by that, I mean acting and bumming around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's talk games. Tell me, how did you get into games? What are some of your first game memories? The first ones that weren't like mainstream games I was introduced to were Dominion, Catan, Munchkin. But I don't think it really clicked for me until I played Hive. That game was like the first one where I was like, I need to own this and play it all the time. Yeah, I'm so excited to actually be making a tile game. What was it about Hive that clicked with you? I don't know. It was an abstract game. It was silly. It didn't really have a theme. It was just bugs, you know, bugs on bugs. Being able to plan your moves ahead and, and think about, okay, what does my opponent have left? How is that going to affect what I'm playing? The pieces were all, like, really high quality. Like, it just felt nice. For me, it's a more casual approach. What got me, I think, into the hobby of tabletop gaming was... Some people may hate me for this, but King of Tokyo. I, I'd never played Yahtzee before, so King of Tokyo was really cool to me, and I just loved the theme as well. So after kind of seeing that and playing that, I had played it once, taken a break from board games, and then Mark and I had met up a couple times and started playing them more and more, and that's really when mm-hmm. I fell into it. So I have Mark to blame for my uh, interest yeah, into, into board games. He was a toy guy before. That's right, yeah. I was used to being an action figure guy, like with those superheroes and stuff, and... Since then, I've kind of switched gears or pivoted uh, somewhat. You know, I can see how King of Tokyo then would draw you in with because you know they have pretty <laughs> fantastic characters and absolutely. How has your game tastes evolved since then? You still playing King of Tokyo and Hive? Not so much. I can't find anyone to play against me. <laughs> <laughs> my roommates are like too good. my roommates are like uh, I can't figure this out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. I definitely went through like a co-op phase where I was just playing Pandemic and Forbidden Desert. And recently I got into Ghost Stories, which is brutal, by the way. They call it <laughs> they call it like the dark souls of board games because it'll just eat you up. <laughs> um, but lately I've been really into like real-time games like Escape. I just ordered Dice Duel, uh, Space Cadets Dice Duel. So looking forward to, like, there's some sort of, like, different energy when you're on a clock and you're rolling dice and you're trying to figure it out. That's that's really what I've been into lately. For me, my tastes have kind of turned towards uh, more, I wouldn't say, uh, I would say uh, role-playing. Not like the, the bedroom kind, but more along the lines of the fantasy class kind. I just played Dead of Winter not too long ago for, like, the second time, and the first time I... I 
didn't like it at all. I thought it was too complex. I'm surprised you're talking about Dead of Winter. You told me you didn't like that game. I know, I know. I I didn't before, but I uh, played it recently with some friends, and I loved it. It was it's crazy, yeah, how your tastes can change in, in so little time. But uh, I had done like Dungeons and Dragons with a couple college friends and stuff before, so I think that sort of element and with like the fantasy sort of themes really have gotten me into more of the. I don't want to say campaign type games, but maybe the the more story driven games where you can recount about how oh yeah I killed the orc with my blazing sword and plus five gold. I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at right now. Tell me about your worst gaming experiences. Oh uh, man, yeah that that is tough. If you need to dig back to the Monopoly days, feel free. Well, those were dark days. We don't like to speak of you know when. The boards would get flipped and everyone would just be <laughs> screaming at each other. I know for me, it, was, it wasn't like a terrible experience or anything like that, but I remember I played Forbidden Desert on my own for the first time with a couple of friends. I introduced it to them and we won. And then after playing it like two or three more times, we realized that we had played it wrong. So that was kind of upsetting, I think, when it was like, oh yeah, we totally got this game. How hard can it be? And then realizing, oh wait. Nope. Yeah, the success rate is really only, you know, 50% or something like that. <laughs> so that always, I think, changes uh, changes my mind a little bit. Sometimes. I had an experience like that with Small World. I'm, I'm actually undefeated in Small World. I, I won every single game and then realized that we were misinterpreting the sorcerer rules wrong, that you can't actually take over the non-playable village people. And I was like, oh, my wins have all been tarnished. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm undefeated with a giant asterisk next to it. And I'm just like, ah, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> yeah, quit while you're ahead. Yeah. Okay, so in your opinion, then, what makes a really good game? A really good game should be a game that is accessible to most. It should be something that most people can pick it up and, and be able to understand with relative ease. But it should have a layer of depth. It should be able to not be mastered in like four or five sitting. It should challenge you. For me, a really good game is something, yeah, that you can talk about when you're done and it, it makes you excited to play it again. So like the replay value and just some kind of, I think, wow factor, whether it be the theme or the mechanic or, you know, the marriage of both that somehow is something that you've never, ever experienced before. That to me is the greatest part of the game. So let's talk about designing your game. When did you make the leap from player to designer? So we were actually introduced through a friend, uh, Katie Cow who was a year ahead of us in school. She did a board game competition through a local group called Kudo Plays. Kudo is the Champaign-Urbana design organization. And she actually did her game design as her senior thesis. And we looked into the competition and it sounded amazing. So the five of us were just like, after she came and gave a presentation in her class, we all just kind of jumped up and were like, how do we make this happen? We've kind of, I think, always been designers. But then, yeah, we sort of switched gears to game design. And as Mark had said, that's kind of when it, when it all went down from there. Now, when you say you've always been designers, what do you mean by that? Well, at least for myself, I'm kind of sort of been, I wouldn't say like an artist by any means, but I, as I said before, love superheroes. And as a kid, I would always kind of make up my own versions of popular ones. So, oh man, grade school times, I like made up my own Black Panther and his name was called Phantom Feline. So then I would like write little comics about him and stuff like this. My first one, yeah, was Blubber Boy. I think he was from uh, the Freakazoid spoof Batman and Blubber Boy or something like that. But I tried to spin it on my own. And so I've kind of always been really into the evolution of characters and all that stuff. So that's what I mean when I say I've always been a designer. And then like to kind of apply that. He designs his friends as well. You should tell him about Hackymon. Yes. 
<laughs> yeah. He he mashes us up with, with animals, I guess. Yeah. It's just something I do in my free time. Yeah. <laughs> Design. But that's kind of, yeah. So uh, it's sort of like channeling, you know, all this creative energy, this, this force that's within us into something uh, kind of physical that's not just table. Uh, no offense to anyone who makes tables because that is a feat. But uh, we're, we're channeling it into, yeah, another avenue. So this contest, now I, I read a little bit on your Kickstarter page about the origin of Sabatile, but tell me a little bit more about the contest. Did you guys really draw the theme and the mechanic out of a hat? Yes. <laughs> they had something very early on in the contest called Board Game Boot Camp. It was like two or three hour session where your team is assigned a random game mechanic and a random theme. You literally just pull slips of paper, and for the next few hours, you're supposed to try to make it work. And they give you a whole bunch of just stock board game pieces. They're all mismatched. You know, you got like a sorry piece, and you've got some, you know, Monopoly token things, and you're just trying to make it work. And the slips of paper that we pulled were tile placement and mystery. We spent the next couple hours trying to figure out, okay, how do we make this work? And the first prototype was not exactly sabotile. We can definitely tell you yeah. that. Um, <laughs> The, the game started off kind of like a London-esque Jack the Ripper type game where your mystery was kind of, you had like an assignment as, as an assassin and you're trying to take them out before they realize it's you. But we quickly learned that when you're kind of tailing someone, it's easy to figure out that, you know, maybe that's there, your There was not much of a mystery there. It was just us just trying to PvP each other into submission. And then Sehun tried to make it into a game about like wife swap, like... <laughs> <laughs> like trying to like steal each other's girlfriends or something. <laughs> and then that, that didn't work. And then, yeah, yeah. Well, we had the tiles, but there was no reason to move around the tiles. And then one day we were just like, oh, capture the flag. You have to move around a lot in that game. How can we make that work? And so then that kind of let us pivot, use some of the ideas we had already come up with, but then implement them in a new way. For those unfamiliar with Sabotile, why don't you give us the quick spiel? Ooh, we've been rehearsing this every night. <laughs> okay, here we go. Let's time me for a minute. Sabatile is a two to six player strategy game in which each player is the chieftain of a tribe on the island of Exote. The totems of each tribe have been stolen by the trickster god Mezba and deposited inside the temple. So it is up to the chieftains to go into the temple, venture through the jungles, and reclaim their totem, bring it back to their village to win the game. But each of the tiles on the board that players will be placing have been kind of rigged with different powers. So they're imbued with these spirits of the gods of the island. And so as you're placing them down, you're also trying to keep track of what it is that others are placing down by you because it is very much a game wrought with sabotage. And so you want to try to outwit your opponents with clever strategies and chaining of powers throughout your turn. How was that? Yeah, was okay. <laughs> no, that was excellent. I can tell you've been practicing. <laughs> well done. Now, so from what I understand, you know, the game starts out, everyone's on the edge, the perimeter. You have to race to the center to grab the piece and then race back. It's aquatic in nature. So I guess my first question on the game is, have you guys been reading a lot of Hunger Games? <laughs> <laughs> well, if they ever want to do a crossover, we're all ears. I think, uh, yeah, one of the designers had kind of brought that up. And so we're like, no, it's different. I guess we could we could argue because, yeah, there, that is a very iconic scene. Yeah, you are on the edge, but I guess there's more than just the one stone path. In the setup phase of the game, you're going to be placing tiles kind of wherever you want and planning your moves ahead of time. So in that way, the board is kind of always different every game. 
and it will be constantly changing every turn as players pick tiles up, place them down, tiles will get destroyed and or moved around. And so you're always trying to anticipate maybe a move or two ahead. Like, how am I actually going to get there? How am I actually going to get back? Because I know someone's going to screw with me. So yeah, it is very hungry games. So now you mentioned also that you've been working on this game for a year and a half. So what took so long? <laughs> Well, the game has been in pretty close to its current state for the last year. The last year has been mostly polishing, trying to become a company and just, you know, finish certain artistic things. And well, and then also to to continue play testing and double checking that, you know, the design was correct. In addition to that is all the preparation necessary for Kickstarter campaign. I I wouldn't take it lightly Uh, to any listeners out there. If you are looking to do your own campaign, I would say prepare yeah, months in advance. Do your research now while it's still easy and there's no pressure. There's all kinds of people that you need to talk to, whether it be the manufacturer or the distributor or both is always good. And then trying to expand your market reach. So talking it up to your friends, going to conventions and, and showing off the game there is going to be essential. That's, I think, one piece of advice that I wish we could kind of yeah. go over again. Well, we were at Gen Con last year, but we weren't able to secure any sort of table space. So we basically roamed around like <laughs> like banditos just like <laughs> looking for people to play like, hey, you play our game, <laughs> come over here. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> And by then, it was still the prototype. So it was like, eh, not really. Sorry, guys. Like, oh. I'm trying to make it look more inviting, more enticing. So tell me about driving traffic, getting people interested in your game, both now that you've launched and kind of pre-launched. What have you been able to do? We've <laughs> we've been uh, obviously talking it up to friends and family. Nothing quite like bribery or anything, but you know, <laughs> we have been trying to reach out to pretty much anyone that'll listen to us. We've been actually pretty quickly acquiring uh, people through Facebook. I think we've doubled our likes in the last week or two, which was uh, pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's done through uh, the Facebook ads. So you can pay to have like a little sidebar pop up for like, a day or something like that, each uh, $5 or something maybe. And then, yeah, they will come, which has been really, really gratifying or uh, rewarding. And one thing, one thing they didn't tell us is when you launch a Kickstarter project, you will get bombarded with people that are promising the world with marketing, saying that they can help you out, you know, just pay me, pay me now, please let me take your money. So we're trying to wade through that and figure out, you know, which services are right for us, uh, which ones are we going to actually see results with just continue kind of the marketing train. We've been going around to local game stores and we definitely have the stores in Champaign locked down. And then we have one of our members in Chicago that's been going around and surveying the stores up there. Yeah, it's been it's been definitely good outreach. Yeah, visiting with people. I want to get back to kind of the design phase, the playtesting phase. Talk to me a little about when you first took your game out and started playtesting it with people who had never seen it before. What kind of feedback did you get? Did you get some really positive feedback? Did you ever get something that was just completely ridiculous? <laughs> we got a, a lot of nerfing feedback. And by that, I mean there were some powers that needed to be checked yeah. uh, in our game. I would say that's the first thing that popped into my mind with that question. The feedback that I got was mostly positive, even very early on. But <laughs> there was one player that got really, really mad. 
back in the day, we, you know, we have a tile called Trickster that lets you move two totems around. And we have a tile called Mystical Exchange that lets you swap two players' locations. And those are both designed to, at the last second, be able to actually stop someone from winning so that you can yourself win. The game, the whole game is a balancing act of trying to win, but also not letting the others win. But back in the day, we, we had those both combined into one tile. It was called Swap 2. Um, and it was pretty prevalent, which meant that the game lasted pretty much forever. Uh, and one player just got really upset. Like he was just seething. <laughs> I guess too, like as we became more aware of different materials that we could use, we were also able to kind of shrink down, uh, in a way the, the board and, and things like that. So we started off with this crazy chunky material called Masonite for our board and our board now is six modular pieces, but our very first iteration or prototype, it was three large kind of diamond-esque pieces that fit together. And those were, those were heavy. <laughs> so we kind of, yeah, cut back a little bit on that for cost and then also just like the manufacturing kind of stuff. So I think, yeah, it, it had evolved a lot through user feedback, you know, what worked and what didn't, like Mark was saying. There's a lot of suggestions and improvements that we received. So we tried to implement those as best as we could and keep the, the main feel of the game the same from when it started. Did you end up leaving anything on the cutting room floor that you're kind of sad is there that maybe you'll pick back up at a new game? Yeah, I think it uh, everything like from the original, we are still retaining in this Kickstarter version. But we definitely, as designers, right, uh, have been thinking up tons of new tiles that we could maybe use for expansions, new mechanics. So kind of taking a uh, a tip from like HeroScape or something like that, where we have different elevations of tiles, maybe we could see that in the future. Yeah. So it's it's more like we keep coming up with more stuff, but we can't put it into this one just yet. This version, we need to have just the most essential tiles to, you know, the core gameplay. But I can see this totally in the future if it's successful, becoming like a Dominion where you have different expansions and in each game you decide, okay, which sets do we want to play with? Do we want to, you know, mix and match? How do we want to do this? And possibly even having them all lined up in the box. For me, it was kind of sad uh, making the, the 3D temple a stretch goal because that was a very kind of iconic piece for us, having this kind of 3D elevated plastic piece right in the center that you would actually scale every time you wanted to go to the altar. We decided as a team, you know, it was going to be pretty expensive to manufacture and we'll still hopefully be able to provide it, but we would need to up our amount of money if we were to provide that. One of the things I really like about Sabatile is how thematic it is. I mean, you guys seem to have a really strong backstory. You got these cool names of the trickster god and things like that. Where did you come up with that story? Well, real quick, I'll tell you the name of the trickster god is actually like, <laughs> it's actually a combination of the first initial of each of the creator's names. <laughs> yeah, it's an acronym. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was, I'm glad we had some vowels. After Kudo, we sat down, we looked at each other in the in the face, as you do, and we said, okay, space games, they're being done a lot. It's cool, but they're being done a lot. You know, what's something that we haven't seen recently that we think would be interesting? And we decided on this tribal theme. And then it kind of became like sort of like a Legends of the Hidden Temple-esque thing. We ended up like doing some research, like looking into different tribes and like different creation myths and thinking about, you know, the story of like, okay, this is how our game works. You know, you start on the outside, you're fighting over these things. They're obviously very important to you. You're trying to be the first to get it back. Why are you trying to be the first to get it back? What does it mean to you so trying to make it compelling it's kind of one of those things too where since it's our very first game we just kind of thought 
yeah, let's, you know, make up something entirely new. So, of course, like the whole jungle environment, magic island or mystical island isn't necessarily new, but hopefully, yeah, the way that we've shaped the story is something that will attract a couple people. And so far, it seems to have done that. So I think we're happy with it. Yeah, kudos. I think it's I think it's pretty fun. On the Kickstarter page, you mentioned that there's a few different styles of play. You have the regular play, you have co-op play, and then more strategic style. Can you talk a little bit about those three differences? So one of the feedbacks we got, we I don't know if you know the, the game company Volition, but we've actually been pretty close to some of the guys from that company. And they play tested with us. And one of the big feedbacks they had was, we love the game. It's fun screwing over your opponents, trying to stop them. But it sucks when you're rolling those dice and you just keep rolling ones and you basically lose to the dice instead of to the other players. So they, they really highly suggested that we look into, is there a way to play without the dice? Is there a, a way to make movement more methodical? And so for the more strategic version, we uh, allow players to remove the die and the number of tiles that they hold in their hand actually gives them the amount of movement points that they're allowed to move. So as you're spending tiles, as you're doing more stuff, you're actually decreasing your movement. As you're saving things up, you can be thinking a turn or two ahead instead of wondering what the dice is going to do. Those also affect ambush attempts, being able to steal the totem from other players. Basically, anything that would involve the die is now determined by the number of tiles in your hand. That was born out of how the game with six players can take a really long time to get back to you on your turn. One thing we've noticed is that the game kind of tends towards the attack the leader, where if someone is heading home with their totem in tow, the whole table is going to gang up on them, turn against them. And that can be a really frustrating point in that there are five other people messing you up and becoming your bane. Uh, so the team play variant allows you to have someone across the table from you that you can kind of work with. And that way it sort of shortens the game in terms of how much you're going to pay attention, I suppose, like the breaks between your turn and your next turn. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it allows, yeah, for a more co-op feel, of course, because then you're working with someone. For the same and time. in that version, you have to get both totems back to both tribes, but it doesn't matter which person delivers it. And once a totem has been delivered, it's locked in. So you get like a checkpoint about midway through so that the game is allowed to progress because if, if people could keep stealing it, it would just last forever. And that opens up just different mind game kind of opportunities where, oh, he's going into that tribe. Is that his or is that his you know, team members? All this kind of more conniving sort of things. And then uh, we have one where as you land on tiles, normally you would discard them. You In this version, you actually take the tiles and you put them into a little cove on the outside of the board. You know, the board has those little ridges that kind of perfectly fit a tile. And after you've saved up six of those, you get to choose one kind of a la carte to reuse, kind of get a little bit of a boost. And then you discard them and then you start over building the cove. And that one is pretty cool because if you get wildfired, the the tiles that are ex- normally expended during the wildfire, you get to kind of gobble those up and possibly uh, recover faster from, you know, the devastation of just being incinerated by this tile. Let's talk a little bit about your Kickstarter. How's that going? You've been on Kickstarter for a few days now. What's the feedback been? Yeah, the feedback has been pretty positive. We've gotten backers from all over the world, which is super cool to us to you know be able to touch someone who's in like Switzerland, for instance. It has been, I wouldn't say stressful, but very kind of full of what's going to happen next and, and worry because we care. So far, we've raised, uh, I think, just under 15% of our funding goal of 50000 to cover manufacturing costs, shipping costs, the 10% that Kickstarter will kind of take, and then 
a little bit extra for a videographer and other kinds of costs. We were very concerned after our first day, which felt really great, kind of things had fallen off a little bit. But one of our team members had recently pulled up a kick track of our campaign, which is like a, a website that sort of predicts how you're going to do with your Kickstarter. And after seeing that, I think a couple of us have kind of been put to ease a little bit. It doesn't mean that we can sit back and relax any, but uh, we feel a little bit more comfortable with how we're doing in this sort of very long slump period between the first day and the last day. What do you have planned between now and then? Well, we have an update rolling out soon. We're going to be showing off the different board configurations. So all the board pieces are kind of modular, so you can... I mean, obviously, they're designed to come together in this giant super hex, but we have a couple other configurations that we think players will appreciate in order to mix it up. We're going to be releasing the official Word document of the rules so people can kind of peruse that and can, you know, just double check to see if it's the right game for them. We should be releasing some more flashy kind of showing off our stretch goals, different animations or or GIFs or whatever can allow people to see the components and maybe get more excited about pushing for funding and going above and beyond. And then, of course, public outreach through kind of blog websites or podcasts as beautiful as your own to really, yeah, hopefully get some listeners and, and hear our passion for the project because we are very much in love with it and, and want to share it with people. Have you guys started identifying a manufacturer for the game? Yeah, our manufacturer right now is the Product Greenhouse. Yep, they're based in Chicago. They have a factory or working with factory in China. So what's cool is that their quote helps us figure out what the freight from China to Chicago is going to be. So that is included kind of in the funding goal, which means that we aren't hopefully charged too much extra at all for people to get this game to them. You guys have shipping outside the United States sorted out? Yes, we are talking with Wayland Games and a couple others, like Spiral Galaxy and, and all these guys from the EU. We have one or two in Canada as well that we were talking to. So we are trying to distribute to as many people as we can, absolutely, and to cut back on different value-added tax, customs, etc. So what happens after the Kickstarter? You got other games you're working on? We have a card game that is maybe based on dinosaurs, uh, robot dinosaurs that we'll be developing soon after fulfillment and distribution, etc. We're hoping to do a, a game that is less of a hassle, uh, that may be a little <laughs> bit easier for everyone, manufacturers, us, to work something out. Yeah, well, it's different designing a game when you know the full process. When we designed Sabotile, we didn't know what was possible and what was super expensive. So we were just like, yeah, give it this. Sure, double layer board. Why not? You know, <laughs> it's really easy when we're in the shop to cut that stuff up to, you know, CNC route it or, or whatever. But when you talk about mass production, there's certain limitations. And so just knowing kind of, you know, what we're working with, we can better design for the market. Robot dinosaurs. I'm already excited. So a key member of our audience here on Your Tables on Fire is aspiring game designers, people who are hoping to be in your shoes shortly. So what advice can you give them? Mm. Playtest early, playtest often, and then when you think you're done, keep playtesting because something will come up. <laughs> you just never know what the kind of outliers are in your game. You never know how it's going to be received with different types of people. So don't just play with people that are like you. Try the extremes and design. If you can make it work for the extreme ends of your users, then it'll work for the middle as well. Oh, man, yeah. I think we need a whole other show for this section. 
what Marco said is absolutely essential for game design especially. I would say don't take any of the feedback personally. They're not trying to rip you apart. They're just trying to help you make yeah, a better product. So even if it's something as small as, oh, I don't think this number should have a circle around it, or generally speaking, I think they do. It's not an attack you know, against your design. It is simply to make it more accessible or more readable for the players from maybe far away, up close, what have you. Nothing personal. It's all for the sake of the game. As far as Kickstarter goes, do lots of the research. There's so much stuff and reach out. I think that's my biggest piece of advice is don't be afraid to ask questions or send emails to people who you do admire and, and kind of want to be because chances are if they're not too busy, yeah, they'll be more than happy to let you know what their experience has been and maybe guide you in some way that you don't see yet until you've done it yourself. It's always the what, Captain Hindsight from South Park, I think. It is 2020. Ask for help and for the most part, you, you will get it. All right, fantastic advice. Now it's time to play the Game Design Challenge. Here's how it works. I'm going to randomly select a theme, and then I want you guys to come back and pitch me a game. Ooh. It can be any game you want, even roll and move if that's your thing. <laughs> what do you guys say? You up for that? Okay, here we go. I'm rubbing my hand. Let's see if you hear that. Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to select a theme here. And your theme is bacon. Bacon. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're going to be, yeah, making the bacon in the pan. But the part of the game is that there's oil that's spurting mm. out. And, and what you're trying to do is not get burned by the oil. Yeah. So obviously, it's, it's much more liberating to cook bacon shirtless. Yep. But the problem is the splash zone. Yep. Yep. So you're going to need to play cards to defend yourself against that. Meanwhile, the bacon grease and the little um, the little attack cubes will be mounting every turn. And so you can't actually, you have to try to balance stopping all of the splatter while still mm-hmm. protecting and clothing yourself. <laughs> of course, this is a competitive game. So you have other Baconators who are challenging you and you have to make sure that you can successfully bake the most bacon without losing too many points or or receiving too many burnt pieces of bacon. If you get to a level 5 scalding, you're actually um, removed from the game temporarily. Right, because you have to go to the ER. You have to go to the ER, so that's a major setback. But you can still get back in the game if you can bandage up and just keep cooking bacon. <laughs> that's brilliant. It's It's simple. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm expecting that as your third game Man, on Kickstarter. All right, we'll, we'll write that down. It'll probably yeah, go through a couple iterations. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, Mark, thank you both for being on the show. Thanks for having us. Of course, Jeff. Thank you so much. Any final thoughts? Everyone should listen to Your Tables on Fire. Keep on keeping on. Reach out to us if you'd like on Facebook or the Kickstarter campaign. We'd love to have you give it a look and, and send us your thoughts. But Never Stop Gaming, I think, is... Yep. what I would like to say. Well, and also uh, one resource that's been really helpful for us is Jamie Stegmeyer's blog. StonemeyerGames.com has been just a huge help in being able to prepare for Kickstarter and think about this whole process. Kickstarter is kind of like a field of dreams. We like to think that we're a little bit rooted in reality, but it's it's one of those things where if you have an idea, go for it. Why not? You know, if if people are telling you it's good, then you know it just might be good enough. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. 
just make sure you put in yeah, the time and, and labor beforehand mm-hmm. because that will help you succeed exponentially. Yeah, the, the proof is in the pudding. Be able to show that you have a good idea instead of tell that you have a good idea. Excellent. Well, I'll get links to both your Kickstarter page and your Facebook page into the show notes so people can check you out. Thank you very much. Well, thank you both. We'll talk to you both later. All right. Take care. Great. Looking forward to it. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. Grizzly Forge Studios and their game Sabatile. Looks like a lot of fun. You've been listening to Your Tables on Fire. Follow us on Twitter at TableFire. And also check out our website for show notes, yourtablesonfire.com. We'll see you next week.